time we were in Exodus, what we looked at were the first nine plagues, right? And we saw that there was a particular pattern in these first nine plagues, that they are set aside into three sets of three, and that this tenth plague breaks the pattern. But the first nine reveal clearly the power, the authority, and the supreme rule of God over all creation, specifically over the, pow the power over the gods of the Egyptians, and really over the power, the power over our hearts, right? That he has authority over that. This morning we are going to look at the final plague, the tenth plague, known as the Passover. Now remember, these plagues, including the tenth, are all an, a God answering Pharaoh's question when Moses first comes to him. In essence, Pharaoh is saying, what's so unique and special about your God, Yahweh, that I should listen to him over my gods in Egypt? So the Passover is, in fact, the ultimate answer to that question. It's going to be the plague that finally causes Pharaoh to do what Moses asked him to do a few chapters ago, to let Israel go. And so what is the tenth plague all about? The tenth plague and the Passover is all about God's judgment and about the blood of the Lamb. It's all about God's judgment. And right away, some of y'all are triggered <laughs> in that word judgment and God's judgment, right? It's a weighty topic. It's one that's not very easy to traverse, especially in our culture today. However, it is a topic of the utmost importance. Every single person will have to deal with and face God's judgment one way or another. And yet, so many of us try to avoid thinking about it very much. It's something that can be very misunderstood. It can be wrongly handled and presented. I mean, some churches talk exclusively about God's wrath and judgment and scenes. In these churches, you get the impression that God is an angry God who has an over-the-top temper, that his go-to natural emotion is rage towards us and our sin. And the only way in that, in that context, the only way you learn to relate to him is through fear. And so the way you go through life and the way that your relationship with God is one of Kind of do what you're supposed to, and he won't bother you, right? Because if he's bothering you, it's through his rage and his emotion of anger and wrath and punishment. That's some approach. But some churches are so uncomfortable with this topic and so concerned how people might be turned off when you talk about it that they neglect it altogether. They don't ever broach the topic of God's judgment and wrath. In these churches, you can't help but get a picture of a God who is harmless, who's almost powerless, is kind of a marshmallowy kind of God, right? They think that somehow to have a just God is at odds with proclaiming his love and his forgiveness. But what they don't realize is that to truly have a God of love and forgiveness, he must be righteous and he must be just. But in that context of not talking about it, you get a sense that it doesn't really matter what you do, Right? That God is just passively waiting on the sidelines, ready for you to come. That he will embrace you on whatever terms you deem that he must embrace you on. Right? You set the, you set the conditions. You tell him what stage you're going to come to him in. And he has to embrace you. But no, neither one of those approaches are the picture that the Bible paints of God. 
It's not how the Bible presents his judgment, and it's not how the Bible presents his love. The Bible, our passage, or the Passover, is a place where we see the bone-chilling reality of his justice and his judgment. And yet it's also the place where at the same time we see the scandal and the overwhelming truth and comfort of his love. That both of those things are at play here. And you have to have both go together. If you lose one, you're going to lose or water down the other. And the Bible won't let you do that. Our passage won't let us do that. And so if you can or are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read through verse 32. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or in boiled water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day, on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month, at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing unleavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. 
For the Lord will pass through to strike Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he, prom- as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up, go, sorry, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as he has said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is the word of the Lord. Be all right, you can be seated. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that you would wake us up to the reality of your judgment and the seriousness, and yet also reveal to us the depth of your love and your care and your grace for us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, the tenth plague is distinct from the previous nine in many ways. First, the tenth plague is the only one that gets this long introduction. We didn't read it, but all of chapter 11 is an introduction into this tenth and final plague. In fact, in the first verse of chapter 11, we are told this will be the plague that will cause Pharaoh to let Israel go. Now, it's not because the first nine plagues failed in some way, but God made it clear that they would not lead to Israel's deliverance. We've already addressed what they were for. Therefore, they served as a probationary period where God's rule and authority over all creation was on full display. And right away, we learn something about God's judgment. It is not hurried. It is not a reactive, blow-up anger response. Rather, he is patient even in his judgment and merciful in his timing with his judgment. We're told in 2 Peter 3, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so we see the reality that God is patient in his judgment. He is merciful, but make no mistake about it. When his judgment comes, it will accomplish the purpose that he sends it for. Another way this tenth plague is unique from the rest and unlike the others, is that its effect, it lasts. It continues on after the plague is over. God does not undo this plague and give the relief like he did the other nine. The other nine had a stint, but then he would relieve it, showing, again, his authority over creation, that he can can cause chaos, but he can also cause calm and order in the midst of it. 
But even for the Israelites who are delivered from this plague, it will have a lasting effect on their life. It will change everything. In some ways, it becomes their very identity that we're going to look more at next week. But it changes everything for them. We're told it creates a new beginning, a new calendar, and a new way to understand themselves and their lives in light of who God is. But with the other plagues, Israel was separated by God. You remember the other plagues, God was the one who kind of limited where the plagues would hit, and he separated Israel, showing, again, his control over uh, creation, control over all, and who his people are. They were automatically protected from the effect of those other nine plagues. They received no instruction. They had no part in that protection. Uh, it was only God, and it was Moses and Aaron, the ones who were mediating, but it was only God who was doing it. But with the Passover... It's different because they're giving specific instructions on what they are to do to separate from themselves from the Egyptians. They are to do so only by the blood of the lamb. So there's a preparation that they are to do leading up to this plague to show the separation. But Moses and Aaron, who played roles in the other nine plagues by causing them, being the mediators to cause them to come, they don't do that in this one. They do relay the instructions of God to Israel, but they aren't the ones who caused the tenth plague to come, the final plague to come like they did the other nine. So the question is why? Why are Moses, Aaron, and Israel, why is this different? Why is everyone included as being potentially subjected to the effects and devastation of this tenth plague, this Passover why must everyone, including the Israelites, including Moses and Aaron, follow the instructions from God to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost or suffer the consequences of having their firstborn son die? I mean, the Israelites are the ones who are being oppressed, right? They're the ones who have been wrongfully treated. They're the ones who have been enslaved. We're told they've already worshipped Yahweh. So why are they included as potentially experiencing the effects of this last plague. Why must they too be covered by the, the blood of the lamb in order to not suffer the consequences of the Passover? Even more so, why are God's chosen mediators, Moses and Aaron, who have been his instruments to speak his word and deliver his message, even they have to be covered by the blood of the lamb or they too are going to suffer the consequences of the Passover? What's going on? Why is this different? Why is everyone included in this one? Does this prove our suspicions that God loves to be wrathful and to scare everyone? That he is an angry God ready to pounce and punish at any moment? No, it doesn't tell us that, but it does tell us something about God. And it does tell us something about us that is unmistakable and is very clear. It tells us that God is so holy and so just and righteous that no one can stand before him on their own. Even the oppressed. No one can stand before God on their own terms. No one can withstand the judgment of God, or as in our passage, the destroyer, uh, on their own terms. Egypt and Pharaoh are clearly guilty. We've seen that, and it's been obvious since chapter 1. But what this is telling us is that so are the Israelites. They're guilty too. 
so are Moses and Aaron. In other words, before God's perfect holiness, everyone is equally as guilty. Before the judgment and holiness of God, everyone is equally as guilty. Everyone is equally inadequate to avoid and stand before the just judgment of God. In a turn of events, the plague that will deliver Israel must first be survived by them through the covering of the blood of the Lamb. In fact, the kind of sacrifice that God is requiring here um, reveals to us who God is, reveals to us why no one can stand uh, before God's judgment and live. You see, the requirements are very clear. You cannot just spread any animal's blood on your doorpost and be safe. But there are four verses, verses 3 through 6, four verses given on how to select the appropriate animal, how to select the lamb, insisting that this animal must be perfect, must be without spot, without blemish. That is the only kind of sacrifice that will do because that is what is required by a perfect God. A perfect God requires a perfect sacrifice. Not improvement, not genuineness, not good intentions, but he requires perfection. This is why no one is able to stand or avoid the judgment of God by themselves because no one is perfect. And that's why Israel and Moses are included in this. No one is innocent. We are all guilty. And no amount of good you can do can be presented before a holy and righteous God. In fact, the Bible even tells us that our good deeds, when we try to present them to God as if they earn us something, the Bible says that they're like filthy rags, like bloody, filthy rags to him compared to who he is and his holiness. Which leads us to ask ourselves, do we have a biblical understanding and application of who God is, who we are, and what we deserve? How do you view God and his holiness? And how do you view yourself against that backdrop? Do you make or think too little of God's righteous wrath towards sin or sinners? Do you make too little of it? Is is it a topic that you avoid and you don't think about very often because it's unpleasant, because it feels uncomfortable to sit in? Do you prefer to distract yourself with other things? I mean, the truth is, it's not a topic I particularly am driven to preach about week in and week out. It's hard to address this topic, but the Bible and our passage will not let us off the hook. It will not let us avoid or not deal with the reality of God's righteous judgment towards sin and sinners. So do you just lean towards topic of God's grace and his love and and forgiveness so that his judgment doesn't really cross your mind much. But again, the Bible says this is impossible. That to understand those things, you actually have to understand his judgment and his wrath and his holiness. That God's grace, love, and forgiveness can only be rightly understood and only have the impact it's meant to uh, in light of God's just and holy judgment. Maybe some of us need to spend some time relearning what grace and forgiveness and his love is in light of his holy and scary, wrathful judgment. But maybe you're on the other side of things. Maybe you're on the other extreme, that you are suspicious of God's grace and his mercy because you have an unhealthy view 
of his judgment on that other extreme. Maybe you grew up with or you've been taught or you can't shake the reality that you are guilty before a holy God. That all you've heard is the fire and brimstone kind of preaching, right? Every single Sunday you hear hell, hell, hell. It's this fear-based preaching. And his judgment takes up so much space in your heart and your mind that there's no room for things like his grace and mercy to be understood rightly against the backdrop of his righteous judgment. You've been taught and told that about God's grace and his forgiveness, but the noise of his judgment in your ears drowns that all out. That you know how guilty you are. You know how much you sin. You carry around the shame of the sins that you aren't willing to tell other people about. And then you question whether God can truly forgive you, fully forgive you. I mean, you know what the Bible says. You know the gospel. You know what the gospel proclaims, that you struggle to believe it for yourself. You can see how it can be true for other people, and you can tell them even about the good news. But you really struggle to feel that it can be true for you too. You feel like your faith sometimes barely flickers. It's barely staying alive and it barely flickers, especially when you compare yourself to other people who seem to have it all together. I mean, they seem to be so sure and so confident. But it's everything in you to not be paralyzed by fear and anxiety at the thought of God's judgment in your life. Whichever side you fall on, here's the truth. It ultimately doesn't matter how you feel about this topic. It doesn't matter how you feel about God's judgment because our passage shows us that it's something we have to address head on. It's something we have to understand. The judgment of God comes to Egypt through the destroyer, and it goes through the most powerful nation, the most feared army, and the greatest political power that the world has seen like a knife through warm butter. This destroyer is an unfathomable force, and nothing and no one stands a chance against it. So how in the world can you face it? And God answers that question with, a lamb? A lamb is how we face it? How can anyone survive this final, climactic, devastating plague? God says, a lamb. You mean to tell me that the blood of a spotless, innocent creature is going to cover me so that this destroyer will pass over my guilty life? And God says, absolutely. Absolutely. Can you imagine the fear and the horror of the hours leading up to that night and this first Passover, this tenth plague? You imagine the fear and the emotions running through every family that night were babies and men and teenagers and everyone is subject to death and God's judgment. That night where the screams and wailing <laughs> where the screams and wailing of loved ones are heard throughout all the land of Egypt where you hear the most horrific sound coming from your neighbor who just lost their firstborn son. It's a bone-chilling and sobering thought to try and place yourself in Egypt that night. 
I've been living in that all week. Um, the blood of the Lamb is your only hope. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are in this context. It doesn't matter what you have or have not done. It doesn't even matter what you say you believe. The only thing that counts for anything is that you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. But imagine what the Israelites would be saying and going through that day leading up to the dreadful night. D.A. Carson is a biblical scholar and he gives this powerful illustration of it. And he says, there's these two Jewish men that they're talking the day of the Passover, the first Passover. They're talking to one another and one says, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? And they reply, well, God told us what to do. He gave us clear instructions through Moses, very specific instructions through him. You don't have to be nervous. I mean, haven't you put the blood on your doorpost and the lintel? Aren't you ready to eat the Passover meal? Don't you have all the ingredients for your family? I mean, haven't you done that? It's very clear what we need to do. You don't need to be nervous. And the guy replies, he says, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But still, it's pretty scary when you think of all the things that have happened around here lately. I mean, flies and frogs and water turning into blood. It's pretty awful what we've seen take place. And now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed. I mean, it's better for you. You have three sons, but I only have my one. And I love Charlie more than anything. I know what God says. I put the blood there. But it's really scary still. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. And that night, the destroyer sweeps through the land. And the question is, which one lost his son? Neither. Neither lost his son. Because death doesn't pass over them. Because of the intensity or the clarity of their faith. Death passes over them on the ground of the power of the blood of the lamb alone. It is only the blood that can cover those who are guilty. So God's judgment does not destroy them. The power of the blood is that it takes God's judgment from destroying you to now being the way through which you are delivered and saved. The holy, righteous judgment of God has to be addressed. It cannot be avoided, but it does not have to be feared for those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Because now his judgment becomes the way of deliverance and salvation. Praise God. The truth and hope of this is not based on you. Your hope and your strength are not found in the intensity and sureness of your faith, but it's in the object of your faith where the power is found. The Passover is an event here in Exodus but it becomes a meal that is celebrated from generation to generation, and they share it, and they repeat it over and over, pointing back to this event. But it's also a meal that points us forward. It points us forward to another lamb. See, Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, is sharing a Passover meal with his disciples, the Last Supper. 
And now at the Passover meal, when you have it, we're told in our text what needs to be there, what needs to be required. You have bread, you have the herbs, the bitter herbs, you have wine, you have the all-important sacrificed lamb. But at this Last Supper, this Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples are at, we are told there is bread, we are told there is wine, but there's no mention of a lamb. How could that have been left out? How could that have been overlooked? This is the most important part of the meal. It's the most important part of the Passover. There's no lamb mentioned because there's no lamb on the table. Because the lamb is at the table at this meal. Don't you see that Jesus is the unblemished, perfect lamb that is sacrificed for you? And it's his blood that covers you. God's judgment rains down on this spotless lamb of God so that it will pass over you. You are covered by his blood, and it is the power of his sacrifice and his blood shed on the cross that saves you. God's judgment passes over you because it was poured out fully on his son. God's righteous, just judgment is real, and it is terrifying. But if you are covered by the blood of the Lamb, if you are covered by the blood of Jesus, then his judgment has already passed over you because it got poured down on him. So there is no more judgment or wrath for you. There is no more condemnation for you. Jesus drank the fullness of all of God's judgment, of all of God's wrath that you deserve. So nothing is left for you. God's judgment destroys Jesus on the cross so that not only will it not destroy you, but it's actually how you are saved, delivered, and passed over. And this is meant to free you. It's meant to free your heart from the fear and anxiety of God and his judgment. It's meant to humble you too, though, because you know that apart from Jesus, apart from Christ, you have no hope in yourself. That you are just like everyone else, just like the oppressive Egyptians, just as guilty as they are. And so it meant to humble you, because apart from the blood of the Lamb, you have no hope. But because of the blood of the Lamb, you have all the hope in the world. And it's meant to free you from being so concerned with what people think, because you are already covered by the blood of the Lamb, you know what God thinks of you. You know his love and his care for you. The power is not found even in your ability to believe this. Right? It is found in the blood of Jesus alone, and that covers you. That covers your doubts. That covers your fears and your concerns. It covers all of your sin, all of your weakness, all of your struggles. So my prayer is that God would help us this morning to experience the glorious rest, the glorious freedom that only comes because we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Amen.